The podcast is called Demoitis. Okay. And essentially our idea was using that as a talking point, um, you know, the struggles of Demoitis when you're recording at home by yourself and okay. then going to make the final song and you have to kind of get from point A to point B and gotcha. how that, you know, it's just the songwriting process or if like Dave's come to you with demos and you've been like, okay, hey, well, we need to change this, you know, whatever it is, Demoitis is kind of like our, our jumping off point gotcha. theme. Cool. Some nice podcasting gear you guys went all out we spare no expense it's tough because like like the way we do it is we just hold the mics yeah like fucking 2017 podcast schlub style and so my track is always great right and then everyone else's track is always like it is insane (laughs) to me how someone is like oh a microphone this is a tool for me to gesticulate with it has nothing to do with I'm like what do you think it's what's happening you think it's picking this magically making like a CSI 3D fucking model of the space audio wise so anyway um okay so let's talk about music a little bit You're listening to Demoitis. We're here with Graham Wright of Tokyo Police Club, um, good friend of the band who we just recounted that the first time we met, I slept on his couch not 10 blocks from where we're recording this podcast right now in Toronto. If there weren't so many condos, we could probably see it. Damn those condos. Damn those condos. As Ben said before, podcast is called Demoitis, which is a word that I'm sure you know all about. Oh, yeah. The reason that it's called Demoitis is obviously because we have demoitis for like every we're a band that demos a shit ton yeah. um, and we always are going into the studio and like trying to recreate the magic so why don't you shed a little bit of light on your guys' experiences with like demos and how you guys work right um I feel like demoitis has been like the story of our career and maybe that's not unique maybe every band has that but you kind of like we've all kind of come up you guys and us and, and all our peers have come up at a time when demoing is super easy like now you just get a laptop with GarageBand on it, it comes free, and a MIDI. Like you don't even need a MIDI keyboard. You press caps lock, and it, your keyboard becomes a keyboard. And all of a sudden, you can make like a fully fleshed out like a song that would fool anyone if it was like if you knew at all what you're doing. And so the the ability to like, because I guess my whole creative philosophy is that any idea whether it's a song or a script or a podcast or whatever there's sort of like the universe there's like a big bang moment where you have the idea and like everything that's important about the idea comes in that moment and sometimes it's small and sometimes it's big but and the rest of the process is just like taking all that raw material and like forming it into planets or forming it into something that makes sense and so the ability to demo in a way that isn't like a voice memo on your phone or like all the old legends about calling an answering machine, you know, and like singing into the answering machine at home because it's the only way to remember the song. Now that big bang moment can last for longer and longer and like the raw moment of inspiration can come not just into like chords and melody or lyrics, but riffs and beats and like, you know, vibes and and total aesthetics. And... That, I think, I mean, the upside to that is obvious. It means that you can, like, you can get the, the pure vein of inspiration into all the shit. The downside is that it means that a lot of times for guys in the band, like me, who's not the singer, songs come to you, like, really finished. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's kind of this weird way in which, and this is, I don't mean this to sound ominous, but, like, where that's how singers, like, 
consolidate power <laughs> by, by accident, but they just, because of course you're not going to stop having an idea. Like when you're demoing a song, you're like, oh fuck, this could be a riff. Oh my God, holy shit, the drums could go like that. Oh my God, this is so good. You're not going to not do that because it doesn't give your drummer as much to do. But the other side of that is when it gets to the band, that filter that songs used to go through, which is everyone's ideas, tends to get, you know, muted a little bit, I guess, especially when you bring other people into the, like when producers come in or management or labels or whatever, they hear the demos and as bad as bands are getting married to the demos, like business people are a million times worse. You guys know that. Yeah. Where they're just like, yeah, I like the demo. I like the first thing I heard. And you're like, well, that was just like a shitty oh no you want it exactly like that and every time we change it you complain okay good good, good. <laughs> and like i remember when we were making elephant shell like way way back which was the first time we demoed anything like the first ep we did we just wrote the songs because we were teenagers but then we would they, we would start to demo these songs or dave would start to demo them but this was bef- right before like garage band got really accessible so a lot of his demos were kind of just like strummy nothing and we first started working on it with this producer and he had the worst demoitis and he was trying to make us make this record like acoustic and strummy and it sounded nothing like us and the songs weren't like fleshed out. But he was like, yeah, but the demo is really special. It's like, well, we'll just fucking put that out then. Do your job. <laughs> so we stopped working with him. Well, that, that's a really good point where you said before how, uh, you know, a, a singer or whatever, um, demoing a song and not stopping and make you know, bringing a final product basically to the band. Um, but who's to say that, you know, Dave's drum beat is the right drum beat or his keyboard line is the right, right keyboard line just because it was part of his big bang. Is that something that, um, that is easy to kind of like step in and be like, well, uh, this is cool. It's a great song, but you have demoitis and you should probably take a step back from your own demo. Dave's actually better at that than any of us. I think that he, you know, like I, my biggest personal creative failing, I think, is that I'm a real like rule follower. And so when I hear something a certain way, my brain automatically locks into like, that's the way that is. And so if a song comes in with a certain keyboard or or even with a certain rhythm or beat or whatever, to me, I'm like, that's the, that's the song. And I have to create within that box now. Whereas Dave, I guess the, the metaphor I always use is that, um, you know, you guys tell tour stories, right? Like you have like your legends Bring from, it on, from yeah. through the years. <laughs> and so if I tell a tour story, I am, you can never be totally sure, but I'm pretty sure that I'm telling it with like journalistic accuracy. And that's just <laughs> how I assume you should tell a story. I'm like, that's, this is how it happened. This is where we were. And this is what happened. And this is who was there. And this is, if Dave tells a story, he will get every detail wrong. And it enrages me. I'm like, he's no, nothing you're saying happened until, <laughs> but at the end of the story, he'll have got the exact spirit of the story across and it will be as funny and funny for the same reasons. And it, it will be just as good as the totally accurate story I would have told. And I think that's basically how he works creatively as well. Like he'll bring in a song that's totally fleshed out and we'll be like, okay, cool. It sounds great. Like, I guess this is what we're doing. Maybe we can tweak it. And then it'll be like, what if it was an entirely different way? And just throw the entire thing up in the air and, you know, everyone else is sort of left scrambling after it. But I think that's, that has so much more value than getting demoitis. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally. also one of the, you know, the ways around demoitis is you can't recreate 
that magic that you get in the demo. So when that producer wants to be like, well, let's recreate the demo, you're like, well, the reason why you like it is because there's something you can't recreate totally. yeah. in it that happened at that Big Bang, that you know, that moment. And that's what everybody's always striving to get, that feeling. I want to have that vibe. Yeah. And you're like, well, this is a different time. So to completely deconstruct it and rebuild it right. is like a way of getting over demoitis. I would even posit that some version of demoitis is at least partially responsible for like the recent electronic trend in indie music because when you're making music on your computer you know to record the guitar you at least have to have like a direct box and you have to use like an amp simulator and like spend a few minutes to get it to sound okay and like the drums you know you kind of got to verb them out like the, they never quite sound real but synths sound like synths whether they're analog or in the box and electronic drums sound like electronic drums whether you have an actual 909 or just the 909 preset on logic yeah and so it can be really rewarding when you're making shit at home to be like oh cool fuck man like synths are washing and it sounds like the 80s this is dope and then if you get demoitis with that you're like well let's just uh let's like midi those box synths into expensive moogs and that's the record yeah <laughs> and like i feel like there's it's not a coincidence that everyone got logic and then three years later everyone became an electronic band <laughs> <laughs> also i find demoing just like such a creative experience because you have endless time on your hands and if you have that flow you just keep going and going totally. and going and going or sometimes when you're in the studio trying to make a track you have everybody there and you're paying for a space and a producer and it's kind of like okay well what what is the finished product you want you're like well you know we only got there by spending you know x amount of hours trying shit out and failing but yeah. it's harder to do that in a studio setting yeah, because all of us, and everything also feels final. It's like, I am recording the guitar part now. Yeah. This is the synth part. When you're demoing, you don't have that, so you're going to be more free if you're not scared. Yeah. And you're going to be a little bit scared when you're doing the final thing, because it's freaky. Yeah. It's so, so it sounds like Dave is like a, a, a really good leader, uh, you know, band leader, whatever, yeah. um, in that he is very willing to totally deconstruct his demos, even though he might be married to them. And maybe you're the guy that gets married to his first ideas. Yeah, oftentimes I am, which is funny because it'll be things where I'm like, I don't even, like, I don't like this song. We shouldn't do this song. And then he'll twist it all the way around. I'm like, oh, didn't occur to me it could be like that. Um, it's something I'm constantly trying to get better at, but it's hard to break those habits. Is is there stuff that you guys do eventually use from his demos? Like, as, as, uh, like has a demo stem ever made it into the final track of a Tokyo Blues Club song? Yeah, Bambi is sort of the most notable one. Okay. Like that lead part that, ever you know, I can, it's hard to describe the is because part. he like Dave and I used to do this thing. I'm I'm, I'm sure we talked about this way back in the day, Tyler, uh, called Wednesday songs, where when we were both living in Toronto when we were like young. This was like eight years ago. We just had a deal where we're like every Wednesday by like noon we have to send each other a song that's finished. Wow, that's and, a lot and, of pressure. And he had, the rule was like you had to wake up Wednesday morning and do it. You couldn't. It couldn't already exist. We would break the rule, but whatever. So. It was a great exercise, obviously, because it just forced you to be like, especially you'd wake up hungover at like 10 and be like, fuck, I, got, I have to do something. Yeah. I have to write something. And How many Wednesdays did that last for? <laughs> it, we, when we were really doing it, I feel like we got like a few months in. Okay. I feel we like definitely it. generated like 15 or 16 songs each. So when you pass away, you're not going to have like a Prince-sized <laughs> vault no, with sadly, thousands sadly and thousands of songs Wednesday stored songs. up. 
Uh, but the big, the song that made it through to Tokyo from that was Bambi, and oh, okay. he had just he had had some other like instrumental little guitar thing that sounds nothing like it. It was like this like slow, chill, like harmonized guitars, and then he just went through in GarageBand and totally at random just cut chunks out of it and then dropped them into a new timeline, and that was that was like the bling bling, yeah. and, and that and like he built a beat around it, and so. Those those original chunks from his thing. It was because it was impo- would have been impossible to recreate it. Oh, the other thing. I guess the other notable part that I I will mention because it's one of my favorite things I've done is in Argentina at the end of Argentina Part One. There's this like um, like forest of arpeggios that happens. Which was we were we demoed Force Field super heavily. Like we that whole record exists in almost an identical form, but lower fi that we did in our rehearsal space. Like we built those songs. Yeah. And I had this idea, I was like, yeah, this part should have like arpeggios that go around. And of course no one wants to stand there and watch me do arpeggios. So they're all like, It's fine, we don't need it. So I went in one morning, I like went in two hours before and this is the beautiful thing about having a rehearsal space, which we don't anymore. But and I just like hooked my poly six in and just started like arpeggiating for like two hours and it worked out great and again we tried to redo it in the studio which I think that's a lot you you guys I'm sure have learned a similar lesson where it's like not everything needs to be done in a shinier way sometimes the magic is the magic yeah and so after spending like I'm sure like a fucking day with like nine different keyboards trying to duplicate the arpeggios we finally just gave up and copied and pasted the original tracks and of course it's much better yeah and I'm sure they sound just fine they sound great So far, the best thing is, and including today, uh, with the you know three interviews we've done so far, each one makes me want to go and make music. Hell yeah. Because talking to other artists about making music makes it seem more feasible, like it's not this impossible task. Yeah. And makes demoing sound so awesome, because when you have that time to go and sit and demo, it's just like, everything is a possibility. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Do you feel like it's so much easier to make demos and to make music now after been doing it for so long yeah but I guess my let me answer that question with another long rambling extemporaneous journey Uh, it got too easy I think for us Um, and I I don't I don't like to like shit on stuff we've put out I think everything we put out is, is good and has and like you know it's it all wound up good but like the the two EPs that we just did I think were the result uh, they were the natural end result of the process that we had sort of perfected you know through the four years it took us to make Force Field like demoing and writing and like really like sponging up wisdom from like Rob Schnapp when we made Champ and, and learning to execute it ourselves and we finally were like we we didn't literally put in our 10,000 hours but we put in enough hours that we were you could like you just knew how songs go. You know that moment where you, like, you feel like you're starting to see the Matrix code? And it's like, <laughs> right, like this is what happens there and that's what happens there and of course the riff is going to be like that. And that's exciting because you want to think like, finally, we got there. Now it won't be hard anymore. And then we did the EPs and afterwards we're talking about it, I'm like, man, they kind of... I, I Soulless is too mean a word but not soulful enough. Right. Like we, I don't think we feel like all of us 
is in those songs. Like the formula is Because they just, like, they would come together like that. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, that's the beat, and, of course, it's going to go in this way, and that's the sort of keyboard tone that's going to pop in here, and, like, done. And that's, I don't know that that's a good way to write songs. Like, I don't know that when it just, like, slides right off your tongue that it's it has as much value as something that you have to not necessarily suffer for because we're not suffering for the new songs they're even easier but they're easier in a different way they're like those we were good at being clever and now we're like we need to be dumber well that's what i was going to ask you because i totally follow what you're saying and it's a great self-awareness um to feel like things are happening too easily and maybe you're just kind of like falling into a formula Mm -hmm. but then at the same time like Sometimes the best songs just happen so quickly. Right. And and so how do you discern between a song that's coming so quickly because it's amazing or a song that's coming so quickly because you're just kind of like following the steps? Well, to go back to sort of my, my Big Bang theory from earlier, uh, Sheldon, I, I think that the songs that are easy and good are the ones where all the easiness happens in the initial spark. And like right. that feels like the songs we're writing now is like we start to play them and we look at each other and smile. You're like you know that thing that bands do where you're like, oh fuck, this is good, this is good. We're on it, and you're like all happy about it. And like I'm sure you guys have a million of those room demos where at the end you hear someone be like, oh yeah, <laughs> which is my true. I wish that I wish that I'd kept all of those from our career because there's always one of every song where you hear someone be like audibly stoked at the end of it, which we should start putting on the records. I think tell people what to think. <laughs> um, and then, and I think, so I think those songs are the ones where you're like, oh, we're finishing the song in the glow of the song. And if you get it right, then it's, you know, it's pure in a way. Yeah. And the, when it's going wrong, it's like you, the glow of the song is done. The idea of the song has happened and now you're just assembling it easily. Right. Like the machine is working at peak efficiency. Yeah. Like it's and a like piece of Ikea furniture. It. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's a piece of Ikea furniture. And Ikea, like, I have a lot of Ikea furniture. And Ikea furniture is solid, and, you know, it's affordable. It's and got cool names. It's got cool names. It's something for everyone to enjoy. And there's probably a place for Ikea furniture in, like, the pantheon of, of music. But we were talking on the phone with this producer that I think we're going to work with for the new one. And I won't say his name in case we end up not working with him or whatever. But, uh, but he was... He put it in a, a way I really liked where he was talking about, as all producers do, about, like, you know shouldn't be perfect like we should hear the flaws and then of course you never get the flaws but he said (laughs) right everybody says that (laughs) um but he said something in there that made me think that maybe he he wasn't just saying it he gets a little more he was like i listen to these records now that i'm really excited about like new records by bands i love and i like them and then i find myself never wanting to go back to them whereas the records that you know that have fuck-ups in them or or take a little longer to come to are the records i end up going back to more and more often and i think there's a lot in that in terms of like yeah we can you know, if you've been a band for 10 years, you can churn out 10 competently written songs that, like, go to the five before the chorus and hold the high notes until the appropriate moment and, like, do all the things that, you know, do all the tricks. And people are going to like them. And that's not nothing. Like, that's, you know, I jokingly referenced the Big Bang Theory TV show a second ago. But that's, I like, that. That my, was, par- my parents love that show. And I watch it with them sometimes when I'm visiting. And I don't love that show. And, like, you know, I think people and like cool downtown people hate that show but you watch it you're gonna laugh because they're reliably creating punchline machines and that's fine and like a lot of millions and millions of people sit down with their supper and tune out and watch that show and that's that's valuable but it's like i don't know i want to 
not that Tokyo Police Club will ever get this far in the metaphor, but like I want to make like Twin Peaks. You know, I want to make the show where the the ten minutes of it are just like going through a nuclear explosion. I think that's a lot more interesting in the long run, and that's what people are going to go back to. You know, the Big Bang Theory. No one's buying the fucking DVDs and revisiting season four, episode eleven. I've never because you can just watch the new one or whatever's on syndication. It's all the same. Um, yeah, so I I think that it's it's cool to make punchline machines and it's cool to make the, the big bang theory and i don't want to sound snobby like it's not like inherently it's, better or whatever but it's not snobby know. well this is why i think like my only um my only like xenophobic nationalist uh stand is that i think we should have like a two-year moratorium on swedes writing pop songs <laughs> i don't think they should be allowed for a little while because it's, there's like five swedes writing every song and so there it's just like five guys whims are controlling pop culture in a way that i find cool it's interesting that those guys did it so hard but it's like what would happen if they just like you know if they shut up for a second yeah and someone i mean it would be jack antonoff which is hardly better but uh at least it would be different like that's why that lord record sounds like such a breath of fresh air because it isn't done by the same exact machine yeah yeah i haven't heard it i just heard the singles but it's good i like the single yeah the singles are the best songs on it, but what else is new? Okay, well, so so real me this. Can your, like, serious, heartfelt Twin Peaks art song be put together in a way that it is accessible and become a big hit? Like, if you disguised Twin Peaks as Big Bang Theory and a Brazilian people watched it? Be, because yes. obviously, like, like, we agree. And, like, we've just made a record that is very not radio um, it had one barely radio friendly mm-hmm. song on it, and we had to like make a radio mix you had full to blink of those guitars at ridiculous blink twenty two guitars in order to get commercial radio to play it. And all of those songs are are very heartfelt and like very sad songs, very personal songs. Um, can you take those songs and that artistic direction, and can you? go into a studio and tweak those and make them hits in a way? Or is that just, do they have to be two separate things? I think it can happen. It's not a good time for that right now because things move so fast and are so, like, it's kind of self-oscillating in a way that it's it's tricky for something new to sort of trickle into it. But at the same time, I feel like like that guy A song that was so big a few years ago, somebody that I used to know, I think yeah, it was called. Yeah. I don't think I said his name right, but that's fine. Um, you know, that was weird. That fun song that was big that same summer was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, I think there's a long history generally of the biggest, smashiest songs being the ones that come out of left field. You know, yeah. like Hey Ya is a song that was like by a hip hop group, but barely was a hip hop song. It wasn't really any kind of song in particular. And you hear it on the radio to this day, and it's probably the best song of the 21st century. And like, it doesn't sound like anything. And nothing came after that sounded like it either. No one was able to successfully copy it if they even tried. And so I think there is some kind of like, there's an alchemy that can happen. And I don't know if it needs to be, because we're still talking in the terms that like, okay, we'll, t- we'll take our song that we made that's heartfelt, and then we'll find someone who knows, who speaks the language of the radio to make it right. Yeah. And maybe that's like practically true right right now, frustratingly. But I kind of think that there's you know, something's on the horizon. Like, I think people's tolerance for homogeny is maybe stretching thin. Yeah. Um, just the fact that, like, guitars are coming back and shit, that 90s thing. Like, I've t- I remember talking to some, you know, old industry dudes about the 90s, 
and they sort of talk about it with just like this almost like giddy disbelief at what they were making hits. Like they Beck has like platinum records. Like if you listen to Loser it out of the context of it having been a smash hit for like most of our lives, what what? <laughs> that? It's like a white busker rapping over a slide guitar and drum machine. Like yeah. it's not it shouldn't be anything, but it was just like tweaked enough and just different enough and it came from a, a point of view that that felt fresh but felt honest and pure and i think that you know some not it won't be exactly like that again but some version of that could come back yeah and i i think what where uh you know where a good producer can come in is taking because a personal expression is very close to you and that's cracked but it also means it's harder to look at it objectively and it's harder to say like and it's not about how to make it formally fit that you know pop idiom necessarily but something i learned from rob schnapps is that idea of like you know whatever the song is doing is what the song needs to do whatever's important about the song is you have to honor it but sometimes there are ways to make what's important about the song more clear to the listener so what it feels like to you in or like whether it's just you in your heart in your demo or you got the three of you in the room there's usually a way that it can be like that feeling can come across to a, a wider audience. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, it's like when you're making a a movie about a historical event, you don't want to make it exactly documentary accurate because you need people to to feel how it felt to be there. And usually that means you have to push it a little harder. Yeah. And I think it's probably the, the same is true of songs. So I think there is like, yeah, there's a path through which that can all happen, but it involves a lot of luck. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today, man. Thanks, Graham. Really appreciate it. Yeah, guys, this was wicked. Yeah, thank you for your insight. All, Love all to podcast. Beautiful things to say. Let oh. me know when uh, season two of Riverdale is out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay out of Riverdale. Check it out on <laughs> iTunes. Uh, the first Riverdale podcast. That's right. Yeah, we plug your band. Let's plug your podcast. Uh, it's on a hiatus right now, but it'll be back. Right. I would love to talk about Riverdale with you and hear what you have we to say. We always need guests. Okay. Riverdale season two is sucking so far. Yeah, yeah but it wasn't I bet, very good. I bet Stay Out of Riverdale has been really good. <laughs> I hope so. We'll have to check that podcast There's out. There's lot, lots to talk about. Okay, here we are at part two of Demoitis, where we talk about our own songs. Talking about um, the song I Will Follow You now, um, which we referred to a couple times during that chat with Graham. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was originally just the same chords the entire way through. Is that right? Yeah, this is only two chords back and forth. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started writing this song at Vertical Studios, which is uh, Tom Dabransky's first studio where we recorded Taking Abalonia and How Sounds and a little bit of Little Mountain, I think. Um, There's definitely definitely some Little Mountain in there. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's Tom's basement studio in Caresdale, um, and I rented it out for like five days of intense writing um, last summer, just because I needed a place to be to to write and to not be enjoying the summer because it was a really good summer. Um, and Tom's studio is like trapped in the dark basement; you can't even see the outside. Um, and his mom brings treats sometimes, which is nice. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I wrote this song that was just two chords back and forth. Um, and I think I just really wanted to start a song 
with the words holy shit. You weren't satisfied with holy shit. You threw some holy fucks in there too. <laughs> some more shit, some more fucks. Always got to elevate second verse, man. How do you, where do you go from holy <laughs> shit? I think you go holy fuck. Just take it up a swear. Yeah, take it up a swear. Um, and this was a song where I I had a really fun time writing the song. And I was just like laughing like a little kid the whole time I was writing the song. Uh, um, just because it felt good. Yeah, I, well, I could tell. I, I mean, when you listen to the demo, you were you were having fun. I like the little, what's the little voice thing at the beginning? Yeah, it's just that, me, me going like, yeah? <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Why didn't well, that why make did it? Why did we keep that? Yeah, did it make it to the final cut? I don't know. Um, but it didn't. Somebody decided. I think it got I, forgotten. I think it was a little too much at times. It was too fun. But it was, it was it too was great. Fun. Too yeah. much fun. It didn't really fit the Said the Whale uh, trademark. So. Yeah, it wasn't enough of a drag. The song's already like out of place on a bummer record. Yeah. Too happy. Too happy. We get complaints about that all the time. People are like, I started to dance and I was a little disappointed. Yeah, I was I was just feeling like, this song is a hit. Having so much fun writing the song. And I did this like full demo. I couldn't stop myself. It was one of those things where I was just like writing every part and not wanting to stop myself because it was so enjoyable um but then sort of coming to the realization that this song that only had two chords back and forth was actually really boring because uh even though it did have a chorus and a verse and stuff it just felt really samey throughout yeah but i knew how to play it that was awesome (laughs) super easy to play (laughs) um so the next who changed it well, the next step, um, I was working at Light Organ Records at the time, um, a Vancouver record label, and I was helping out with a band called Fake Shark, um, and their singer, Kevy and I had just been talking about songwriting and production and stuff, and so I emailed him the stems for this song and asked him to take a crack at a fresh perspective um, and maybe thinking about some different chords in the song. Um, and uh, he sent back an idea. That was pretty cool. It changed the chords, but for some reason just didn't uh, didn't quite sit right. Sometimes it just takes somebody nudging you out of your rut, though, to have an idea. Absolutely. And nudge me out of the rut he did. Um, it just wasn't. It just it just wasn't a hunt. It just wasn't it. Into a different rut. Out of out of one rut into a different <laughs> rut. <laughs> From one rut to another. Just a rut jumper. So then the rut extractor, though, I think was Kane, just jamming weirdly voiced chords over the chorus, as Kane is usually doing. Yeah, you take you take a normal chord and make it different. Yeah, what is it that he does, Jace? Where Jace, he's how does like, he, what is he, he doing? He voices, like, he, he puts He adds, weird... like, nines and thirteens on them, and I, I I, don't know. I don't think that way sometimes. There you have it, nines and thirteens, folks. Nines and thirteens. The secret to success. <laughs> <laughs> but for real, he the way that, that he plays chords makes them feel like they can be in different keys. He voices them differently. That's Yeah, he voices them in a way that makes it feel like the chord can actually kind of go both ways. So it gives you, it's almost like he plays one chord and it gives you like three options. It just adds more notes to it. It's an octave neutral chord. <laughs> <laughs> so he was jamming these octave neutral chords and uh, these key neutral chords. 
and uh, and somehow it just settled on something that felt right, and all of a sudden the song felt like a song that had a verse and a chorus, and I think that's when uh, when we were like really starting to feel the song. I was still feeling like the song was kind of almost a joke song because it had these sort of ridiculous lyrics or you know started with ridiculous lyrics and the drum beat that i had made was just the dumbest fake drum beat super on the grid and we had cody from the zolas play this song and i'm pretty sure that that is what made the song feel cool like as soon as he he's just a cool guy he just is a cool guy he looks cool when he's playing and as soon as he played the drum beat on the song it was all of a sudden a cool song His coolness just oozes onto that tape, man. <laughs> so then the song was like a real song. If and you imagine a MIDI drummer, he's not very cool at all. Mm. No, shitty MIDI. Shitty, shitty MIDI! MIDI. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes MIDI drums. So he put those real drums on, then the track got real. So that's the other secret. Nines, thirteens, and real drums. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we could do things like put that dinky little piano sound on. Yeah, was that a real piano or was that a MIDI piano? I like to think it was real. I don't think we ever got to the bottom of that. I, for some reason, have it in my head that it was like this actual toy piano. Like a little tiny toy? Yeah. I think it was. Little tykes? I yeah, think like it, little, I like think a... it was because there's no way it could be like just slightly out of tune if it was MIDI. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's too good, or too, it's too shitty. It's too to be, good. Too shitty, too shitty to be, to be MIDI. Too shitty to be MIDI. <laughs> too sh- that old shitty MIDI, he also goes both ways. <laughs> okay, I've got something to say. Um, you were writing the song, you thought, hey, we got this hit, we got a hit on the album, that's awesome, and then you sent the demo, we're like, sweet, Tyler wrote a hit, good, good, now we got that in the bag, and then we released it to radio, and nobody really, like... It doesn't hit. Nobody cares that much. So then do you add a bunch of electric guitars? Well, yeah. So we did talk about that with Grand, didn't we? Um, So, I mean... How do you really make a hit other than Nines, Thirteens, and that other thing? Cool drummers. Cool drummers. Well, Canadian radio is in a very strange place. Most people who listen to it would agree. I remember seeing this poster advertising a radio station somewhere in Ontario. It was this pop radio station and it listed 10 artists that they play. It was like Justin Timberlake, Britney Spears, Drake, Throwbacks. Like Throwbacks. Oh, dude, I love their new record. Yeah, Throwback was one of the main things they were trying to promote on the station. And that is how Canadian radio is operating, not just in pop, but in rock as well. There's You turn on the radio and it's like, over 50% vintage Green Day, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam. Um, it's uh, it's really tailoring towards the 30-plus crowd who are driving to work and want to hear something familiar from their youth. And what's not familiar from their youth is I Will Follow You, this weird kind of like synth-based jam um, that swears a lot and doesn't sound at all like Green Day. The point is that that we had to make some changes to the mix to make it something that the radio would play. So uh, I was in Arizona at the time. I had a crappy guitar that I bought from Guitar Center for $150 that I returned the next week. 
and I had a little, I think I had my little duet, Apogee duet. So I plugged it into my computer. I pulled up two presets in my guitar rig, which is a great plugin that emulates amplifiers. Preset I put on the left side was called All the Blink Things. Preset that I put on the right side was called Smells Like Nirvana. So you put on the Blink 182 and the Nirvana guitars? Yep, and I just strummed heavy guitars in stereo. sent it to uh, a pal of ours, Ryan Worsley, who mixed it just a little crispier to make it sound like the radio. Bam. Wham, bam. And wham, a bam. Hit. Not a hit. It, went, it was like top 20. But still, the radio did play it. It was the song. It was the only song from this record that the radio uh, was interested in playing. Didn't That's we cool. add some tambourine, oh, too? Uh, he added some tambourine, and we also changed the words. What is it? Oh, my God. We're, We're going to need, need a, a ton, ton of, of luck. luck. Even though we are all born innocent, it doesn't take too much to block it out. I was going to say, oh my shucks, or holy shucks, we should have said. Yeah. Man, I like playing this song live, though. It's always fun, and people seem to really get on board and dance and sing along, and you get people singing. We also filmed that music video at our Vancouver show, which was a live performance video. Um, We actually had people on stage filming while we were performing the song, and it turned out really neat. Yeah, we got one shot to do it. Well, actually, we did a couple takes during soundcheck. Don't tell them. (laughs) The magic was in the one shot. Holy shit, hit me like a time. That was a really fun video, though, and I, I think I said this in like the press release for the video, but um, it was the f- it's a video concept that has been done a million times. You know, the live video, you see the crowd reacting, and there's energy and um, shots from tour and those kind of canned feeling shots. But there's a reason that it's done so often by bands, and that's because. It is a realization that your band exists in its purest form when you are on stage and touring and kind of like actively being a band. Um, and so a video like that captures the band in that um, in that setting, you know, being on the road and setting up a show and playing a show. Um, and so I think, you know, there are a lot of struggles that come along with being a small independent Canadian band. But I feel like that video is, I can, I can like watch that video and be reminded of why we are going through the struggles because that video just kind of like takes all of the best moments of being in a band and compresses it into three minutes and it's a nice little like beacon of hope. Also that night was Jacelyn's grandma's like 7,000th birthday. <laughs> she turned 94. She was 94. 7,094. We sang happy birthday to her. It was a beautiful moment. It was, it was she, really awesome. She loved it. She said that was one of the best birthdays she's ever had. So I was glad that she was able to make the show. That's amazing. Good old Popo. Yeah. So I've heard you tell the story many times, but maybe you can tell again what this song is kind of about. Yeah, I've got a couple spiels that I like to do on stage. Um, And uh, like I said before, the lyrics kind of started from saying, wanting to say holy shit, um, because I think at the time I was feeling like holy shit. I wrote the song uh, maybe like two weeks before Grayson was born. 
And um, it, so it's a song about impending fatherhood, I suppose, um, and uh, just sort of the big changes that I anticipated coming. It's also a song about relationship commitment. Um, Laura and I are engaged but never married. We had kind of kicked around the idea of doing like a surprise wedding at one point um, and like didn't tell people about our engagement for a really long time because we thought we might do this secret surprise wedding where we'd invite people and they wouldn't know um, and then they'd all of a sudden be at our wedding. Um, we never did that. It was a lot of work. Uh, just seemed like a lot of work. I saw that um, on an episode of something and it didn't work out. So, really? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we didn't do that. Then. Um, but anyways, so we're in a committed relationship. We have a child together and um, but we are not married. And so the song is sort of like a, a verbal commitment to her. It's a song in lieu of a wedding is what it is. Smart. Songs probably cost about, cost, the you, right? <laughs> probably about the same. Probably about the same. Recording's expensive. <laughs> I'd like to think that made me your best man. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You guys are the you guys are the party. You guys made it into party. the wedding. The party. <laughs> you don't like surprises, but you would put on a surprise for others. I don't like being surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind surprising other people. So did, did you know Gracie was going to be born? 